Well, church, it is good to be together on Easter celebrating the resurrection. I want to say welcome to our online church family as well. Um, starting today, I want to tell you about a Sunday school teacher. He teaches six-year-olds, so he's a, he's a saint. Um, he wanted to teach the kids about heaven. And one of the things that he said is just to kind of get a baseline about where the kids were and what they knew already uh, is to ask them a few questions. The first one he said, if, if I... If I sold my house and my car and, and I gave everything away to people that needed it, would that be enough to get me into heaven? And the kids, right, all in unison, all together, bless these kids. They all say, no, no, that's not enough uh, to get you into heaven. And so the, the teacher ups the ante a little with these six, six years old. And he says, okay, um, what about if I stopped in the church, even on a non-Sunday, and I cleaned up, tidied up the place? What if I mowed the lawn in the summertime, shoveled the walks in the wintertime? Would that be enough to get me into heaven? The kids, again, all in unison, they say, no, no, that's not enough to get you into heaven. He goes, what if I was kind to all the animals? And what if I gave candy to all the good little boys and girls just like you guys and I loved my wife? Is that enough to get me into heaven. And they all, again, say in unison, no, that's not enough to get you into heaven. And so he says, what's enough? He says, how can I then get into heaven? And this little boy in the back, without skipping a beat, just blurts out, you gotta be dead! And, and he's not wrong, right? Like, I mean... We all have different perspectives on like what it takes to get into heaven. I and mean, globally, there's a lot of different ideas out there. But honestly, that's what everybody believes. That's like what we all have in common is the prerequisite for getting into heaven is, first of all, you got to be dead. And, and so this morning, what we're talking about today, going to heaven is, is, is what do we believe in unison together after that? Like one step beyond that. Uh, because again, there's a lot of different ideas about heaven. Most people, the vast majority of people, believe in heaven, and you got to be dead to get there. Uh, heaven is much more um, much more popular than its than its alternative, but that's like a different message for a different day entirely. Um, but after that, we believe about heaven is that what well, like good people get to go to heaven, and we think like. Good according to whom? Well, that's where it starts to like break down. It starts to get a little bit fuzzy as to like how good then is good enough. And so there's a lot of insecurity. There's a lot of fuzziness around. And so I can't think about a better way to honor Resurrection Sunday here at Encounter than helping us, each one of us in the room today, watching online, help us be confident. When we exit this place, when you close down that browser, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt without any fuzz about it, that heaven is yours. And the reason why I get there is because of uh, continuing on in this series where we're doing the last word. What we're doing, in case you're just joining us, is we're talking about uh, sharing the last words of Jesus that he shared on the cross. Like, Father, forgive them. To tell his story. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. These last words about Jesus that point us, that tell us a little bit more about the life of Jesus. And so if you want to, you can hear all these messages that are on our media player online on the website if you want to kind of go back and read some more of them because this is, this is the last one that we're going to do together and we're going to get to it in Luke chapter 23. Let me read a little bit of the passage for you. It starts off this way. In verse 32 it says that two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, that's a, called the skull because it was like this, this hill and it was kind of sunken in and with the right lighting, you know, the sun setting, it, it kind of looked like a skull. 
And so they led him to a place called the skull. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other one on his left. And I just think it's important to highlight how important Luke sees it is to make sure to include that detail. Uh, Luke is sharing one of the the biographies of Jesus. Uh, There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke wasn't an eyewitness to what happened, but instead Luke was uh, an interviewer of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so Luke interviews all of the people uh, that, that interacted with Jesus, the stories that they had of Jesus, and Luke combines them all together. And Luke wanted you to know as you read this passage that it's important that Jesus, in his death, hung out with these criminals, with people like that. And I think it's important for Luke to point out that Jesus hung out with these people in his death because it also seemed to be the kind of people that he hung out with in life. Like these were the kind of people that he chose to spend his time with. Which is a little unsettling for me Like when I start to think about it. Because it seemed like, it seemed like Jesus didn't really spend all that much time hanging out with like good people. And that's a problem when we start to think like good people tend to be the ones that get to go to heaven. Because Jesus, well, Jesus upping the ante a little bit, he seemed to, to, to argue and to have so much conflict. He seemed to have more conflict with the, with the good people than everybody else. And we continue on in the passage, we get to the bottom of a little bit about what's going on here. Uh, verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there, hurled insults at Jesus and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Make no mistake about this, church. Like, this was not a confession. This is not a come to Jesus moment. This is not a repentance. This wasn't turning over in any kind of a way. This is purely selfishly motivated, right? He's looking over this guy. He's looking over at Jesus in between them. And what he sees is a potential to get himself out of the jam that he's in. And listen, like, we do this all the time together. I do this all the time together. Where this guy looks over at Jesus and he's like, hey, aren't you supposed to, aren't you supposed to have like magic powers? Aren't you supposed to be like a superhuman or something like that? Get, get yourself off from this cross. In fact, get me off this cross too. Bail me out of the jam that I'm in so that I can go back living however I want to live. In these last few moments that this guy has on earth, he is asking God to serve him. That's bold. But not quite as bold as what the other guy says. Continuing the passage, it says, verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now that, that's a confession. It's a confession. Uh, don't you fear God, the guy who's standing in the middle of us right now? Don't you fear God who's hanging here and has done nothing wrong, Jesus? An innocent, completely innocent man? I think that what this guy is doing on the other side, he's like leaning forward a little. He's looking down the row of crosses and he can see the far guy and he's going, I do not want to end up like him, even though I'm ending up just exactly like him. And he's seeing Jesus and he's going, listen, I've carefully examined my options and I don't know a whole lot. 
I think you might be God, and I'm pretty sure you didn't do whatever it is that they're accusing you of doing to get you. You certainly didn't do what I did to get here. I think you're innocent. And so I'm looking at my options of that guy and presumably where he's going and you, and I guess I just have one final question. Jesus, wherever it is that you're going, would you take me with you? This is how he asked his question in verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And 43, Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That is audacious. It's audacious to ask in your last dying moments for God to serve you and get you out of this jam, which presumably a week, a month, you'll just do something that'll end you right back up here, the jam that God got you out of in the first place. That's audacious. I think it's even more audacious for the other guy to say, wherever it is that you're going, would you take me with you? And Jesus responds today, like, like 20 minutes from now. When you close your eyes for the last time, you're going to open them in a place that I can only describe as paradise. Wow. See, that, that's Easter, right? And it's just, it strikes me that this guy had so little to offer. And so little life left to, to turn over. He, can, he can't repay the crimes that he's committed. He can't pay people back from everything that he took from them. Not a shot. He's got like, like 20 minutes left. He doesn't even have a great big faith. How could he? He's only got a vague idea about who Jesus is in the first place. And the only thing he knows is wherever Jesus is going, he wants to go along with. He's just got this itty-bitty faith. But I'm telling you, this is our faith in a nutshell. When his itty-bitty little human faith collides and intersects with this Jesus God-sized faithfulness, heaven is moved. Eternity is changed. Paradise is found. What an encouragement for anybody who's been in the jam before to know that I don't need to have this great big size faith. I want to believe that the reward on the other end is proportional to the amount of faith that I have here on this end. But Jesus goes, no, 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 that's not it at all. It, it doesn't matter the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. When your itty-bitty faith collides and intersects with my God-sized faithfulness, heaven is moved, paradise is found. There's a problem. The problem, though, is a 90-year-old Georgian woman named Helen. Helen lost her husband years ago, and her health has started to fail. She loves her grandchildren dearly, and one of them, a granddaughter, recognizes that Grandma has always gone to church and has always seemed to exude the qualities of a Christian person. But I've never really heard her talk much about Jesus, and I've never really asked her about her hope in heaven. And so granddaughter gets the idea in her head, I'm going to make the hour drive, and I'm going to visit Grandma under the guise of learning her world-famous chocolate chip cookie recipe, and then I'm going to have this conversation with her. So she does. Uh, she drives an hour, they bake chocolate chip cookies, they sit down together, no doubt, over some sweet tea in Georgia. 
And granddaughter asked the question, Grandma, are you sure about your hope of heaven? And Helen responds, Boy, I hope so. I hope so. I'm telling you, if this 90-year-old saint of a southern woman has only, I hope so, to go on, this woman who loves her grandkids, who serves her community, who drives the speed limit, who pays her taxes, who attends church every weekend, if her biggest hope is, huh, I think so, I hope so, I'm sorry, what chance do any of us have? We're talking this morning about like, how can we have the confidence that this thief has that when he closes his eyes in 20 minutes for the last time, he's going to open them and be in paradise. How can we have the confidence that that guy have if Helen doesn't even have that kind of a confidence? And so as a gift to you and for our community online here, I would love for us just to be sure of that. And so I want to ask like these three questions based on what the thief of the cross offers up. Just these three questions so that all of us, we can be sure once and for all. The first question uh, from the thief that gets asked is, do, do I need a savior? Like, like am I really, in, have I recognized the need? The thief on the cross, he, rec- he, get, he really gets it. I mean, he's hanging there. And what he says, his bold statement is, we're getting what we deserve. He knows he needs a savior. Like, like, do we? Let's put it another way. Um, how many, how many sins does it take to be called a sinner? I mean, it's, it's, it sounds a little judgy, I know, right? Like church world, like I'm calling everybody's a sinner. Okay, present company included, right? Which is a flat thing. How many sins does it take to be called a sinner? It's one, right? But this is, this, is, this is how the world works. Like, we got to understand, this isn't like a religious thing, a faith thing. This isn't just a church thing. This is, how, this is an everything thing. How many, how many crimes does it take to be called a criminal? I mean, it's, just, it's just one? Just one, right? How many specific times does it take to be unfaithful, to be called a cheater? Like, I'm not coming down on anybody. That's not, I'm just dialing numbers. If your phone rings, like, pick it up. That's between you and him. But, but like, just recognizing this is, like, how it works to, like, flatten this whole thing. Now, some of us, some of us are a little bit, a little bit above, right? a little bit better off than maybe some others. So, like, let's just play the game. Let's say there is this scale of zero to 100, and somewhere all of us are on this scale. And the important part is to recognize that, Jesus calls whatever comes next, Jesus calls that paradise. And it seems like in paradise, nothing goes wrong, and it is perfection. And it wouldn't really be perfection much if he allowed all these imperfect people in all the time. So let's just say for paradise to be paradise, you got to be at around 100. This is a scale. So at the bottom of the scale, at around zero, is just the really worst of the worst, right? This is the Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot. This is the people who pronounce it gif instead of jif. I mean, just really bad people off, fundamentally, right? And then it's like somewhere on there, a little bit higher than that, okay? I'll own that, is me. I'm like 25, You're better than me. I recognize that already. So, like, you're hanging out maybe 45 or so. But, like, specifically, where would you put yourself on that list? Mother Teresa, right? Like, she's a saint of a woman. Again, I mean, 
devotes her life to serving the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India, is giving her whole life again and again and again, everything that she has in the need and the service of people that she doesn't even, she doesn't even know all that much. She goes out of this world, she dies with almost nothing more than what she came into the world. Just the clothes on her back and also a cane to help her walk around. Yet in her memoirs, she talks about how she had doubts and she had personal failings and she carried sin. I I don't know where Mother Teresa ranks. I'm guessing somewhere around like 85, potentially 90. But not at 100. She doesn't even recognize. She's not at 100. It's like, where, where would we put it? How, how do we make up the gap? You know what I think is the best shot of hitting 100? Norman Borlaug. You have no idea who Norman Borlaug is. And you know, it's probably fair to say that the guy that I would see is ranking near 100 you wouldn't know because he's so humble that you wouldn't know his name. Norman Borlaug would probably be one of the guys that I would put as close to 100, I think, as you could possibly get. Uh, Norman Borlaug won the Nobel Peace Prize, the Congressional Medal of Honor, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Norman Borlaug is to have been credited with saving more lives in the 20th century than in all of human history. Norman Borlaug is estimated by UN numbers to have saved over a billion, with a B, over a billion human lives. If there's a saint who has walked among us in the 20th century, I'm guessing it's Norman. Norman is a food scientist. And as a food scientist, he was the one who pioneered and created uh, high-yield disease-resistance crops that were able to feed the world. As a result, he sat on a ton of boards just helping more and more people getting fed. I mean, Norman Borlaug is a saint of a human being, yet in his Nobel Peace Prize, he stands in front of all the other scientists and smarty-pants, and he tells everybody, reading from the the book of Isaiah in the Bible about the hope that he has in needing a savior. Norman Borlaug needs a savior. He's a Christian and a lifelong member of the Lutheran church. I'm telling you, if Norman Borlaug, who saved a billion lives, would put himself underneath a hundred, what chance would any of us have? And I don't think if matters if you're a 25 like me or a 45 like you or an 85 like Mother Teresa or 99 like Norman Borlaug. All of us need to make up that gap to paradise somehow. And so the first question is what the thief recognizes on the cross is just simply, do I need a savior? And the next one from the thief on the cross recognizing, don't you fear God? Who do you say that Christ is? Who do you say he is. Not who does your grandma say he is, or who does your Sunday school teacher, or who the person next to you thinks that you, who do you think that Jesus is? Because it's just kind of interesting to do this like study of, of Jesus having a way of, of, of pulling out what the thoughts were and the ideas were about who Jesus was from like everybody around him. Uh, Jesus uh, talks point blank. He asked Peter, Peter, uh, who do you say? And Peter's like, you know, some, be, some people are saying, 
uh, you, you might be a prophet. No, no, Jesus. No, no, Peter, I mean, who do you say? And Peter says, I think that you are the Christ, son of God. Jesus has this way of eliciting out of people who they say he is. At his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. He has this way of pulling it out of people, even his adversaries. Judas, after he betrays Jesus, Judas then says, I have betrayed innocent, declaring declaring the innocence of Jesus. Who do you say he is? Pilate, as Jesus is on trial. Pilate says, I see no reason to convict this man, yet I'll allow this to be done anyhow. Who do you say? Do you, do you say that Jesus is the one that the thief saw that day, that the thief heard say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. To tell us that it is finished once and for all. And today you will be with me in paradise. You say, along with the thief on a cross, that Jesus was the Son of God, Savior. Again, it doesn't matter who your grandma says, who your husband or spouse or, or roommate says. It doesn't matter. Who do you say he is? The second question. First question, do you recognize the need? And the last one is just simply this. Is that have, have you gotten to experience Grace. Grace. It's so good. Grace is not getting just what you deserve. Grace is getting so much more than you deserve. The thief on the cross, he recognizes he's getting what he deserves. And then Jesus, in response, can I go wherever it is that you're going? Can I come with you? Jesus responds today, like 20 minutes from now, you're going to close your eyes, you're going to wake up, and you're going to be with me in paradise. That's grace. You know, I heard from uh, uh, addiction counselors, specialists. Uh, one person in uh, particular who specializes in, in counseling uh, individuals through narcotic dependencies and addiction. I mean, just really, really nasty stuff. And he says that one of the things that he tells his counselors upon intake is when they come in, they know, they recognize. They have made a mess of their life. Many of them, they already know that the damage that they have inflicted on their kids and the next generation and the next, in a lot of ways, cannot be undone. So when somebody comes in and they recognize that and they're now seeking help, what do we, don't, what do we not do? We not turn them away and say, let me think about it. When the thief comes to Jesus on the cross and says, would you take me with you? Jesus doesn't say, give me a day to sleep on it. He doesn't have it. When the guy says, would you take me with you, Jesus doesn't put a finger into his chest and give him a lecture about all the ways that he went wrong and all the garbage things that he has done to get him up on this cross in the first place. And his addiction counselor says, and we don't put our finger in their chest either because you know what? They don't need to hear about the garbage things that they have done because they already think that they're garbage people. And they don't need to hear it anymore. One person in particular doesn't need and didn't need to hear it anymore. I, I met her when she started attending here just a few years ago. Her name is Alice. I'm making that name up for anonymity. But Alice is a very, very real person. And Alice started attending here on the weekends, and I didn't see her much in between because I came to find out that she was in a, in a group home 
which also served as a detention facility. Her people, the staff, would take her, would allow her to come here on the weekends, which is where I met Alice. Alice isn't her real name because she has been through so much already. We didn't want to bring that up too. Alice, Alice has been abused by so many people in her family. She has been treated like such garbage in her family that she started handing out garbage to other people. Alice did some really garbage things because she was treated like garbage. When I, when I met her, around, around here we were doing a, uh, like this vision casting thing, which I was so proud of. I was so happy. I still am. It hits different now, but I, I so am. It's this process where we take a look at our mission, vision, values, and just so much work, you know, reading and, and staff meetings and more meetings. You guys know I love meetings, so it's just, it's just a delight of a, of a time. Uh, focus groups, right, to feel what, discern out what God is, is shaping, how God is shaping and forming our community. And it's where we get our, our mission statement. It's where we get our values from, those, those banners in the lobby outside, right? It's where all of those, it's just a monumental amount of work. And it all came to a very, very visible point um, in developing and crafting our, our logo, just the badge, the arrows up and down with a circle around it. I mean, just, it, seems like a, it seems like a simple thing. Um, there's so much depth behind it, right? The arrow up, we worship God. Arrow down, we grow to become uh, like Jesus and have deep roots in him. All of this happens, not in isolation, but a community. So there's a circle all around it. I mean, there's like rich, deep meaning in the whole thing. And I am so proud because it's, it's not only our church as an organization, what we're about and the environments that we're about, but it's also like my heart just beats along with that logo. And so listen, on this launch Sunday, we put the logo out everywhere. We have balloons made with the logo on it. We draw it everywhere. We stamp all the cups, right? It's just such a great time. And we hand out stickers. Those little white stickers, you can get them at the starting point uh, desk on the way out. I hope you take them. I love them. I love to see them around. It's such an encouragement. Staff, we take pictures of cars and counter sticker out in the wild, and we send it to everybody. It's a good time. See them on laptops, water bottles. We're handing them out to everybody that we know. Alice takes one. I get, a, I get an email a little bit later with a picture of what Alice chose to do with the sticker that I put so much effort into. This woman, this young lady, has the audacity to take my logo and put it on a garbage can. Hard not to take that personally. The staff says, no, I, you know, I, I asked her about it because I'm the one who drives her on the weekends. Like, if that's what you think of the place, we can find another place. And she goes, no, let me explain it. My whole life, People have treated me like garbage. I tended to believe them. I'm a garbage person. That place you take me to on the weekends, that church, it's the first place that I went to where they served me coffee and a treat, donuts, bagels, where people would smile at me Ask me how I'm doing? Ask me to serve? Join a group? It's the first place that I've ever been to where I didn't feel like garbage. And so, 
recognizing what this place means to me. I decided to put that logo on the garbage can because every time I threw something away, I wanted to be reminded that I have a creator in heaven who thinks that I have infinite value and worth, that I'm not garbage. I wanted to be reminded that God loves me to death and back again to new life. I have a Savior like that. Listen, when the staff person shares a story like that, church, you know, you know it's a follow-up conversation with me as soon as we can make it happen after that. And so we get together the next weekend that I see her. I ask her, I hear this story from her words. And a little while after that, Alice goes ahead and shows the world that she's been raised with Christ by getting baptized. It's a picture of Alice hugging me. Amen. Praise God. It's such a beautiful, beautiful thing of what God is doing in her life. Now she moves away as her story continues to be told in the most beautiful way. She continues her education on outside of the area. So we're sad about that, but so thrilled with what God is doing. He's declaring to people, to you and I, one at a time, to all the Alice's and to all the thieves on the cross and to every single one of us who ranks somewhere under 100 to say there's grace and power even for you, even for me. And so I can think of no better, no more fitting response than to allow you that gift as you leave, to have the confidence, to have this assured message today you will be with me in paradise and to gift that to you in person and online as well. So church, where you are, can I ask you just to stand up? As we're going to continue worshiping here in just a moment, I just want to invite you to stand up and so we can celebrate together, church. Just, just some questions so you have the confidence. And I'd love for you all to respond in this exact same way, a simple answer, yes. Now, the thief on the cross, he didn't know what to say. He didn't know the, the magic words or the prayer to pray, he didn't know any of that. He didn't know the words justification or sanctification, propitiation for all my sins. He didn't know any of that. He just looks over at God dying next to him, and he says, wherever you're going after this, could you take me with you? And so I'm just going to ask that it be as simple as that, a series of questions, and in the room, just say yes. Church online, you're part of this family and community as well. So when I ask the question, I would love for you to type in the answer box below, yes. Just a simple yes. So church, we're going to all say this together in unison. First question that I have, so we can be sure, is do you believe that you need a Savior, that you're somewhere underneath 100 on the scale of 1 to 100? What's your answer? Yes. And church, do you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? The son of God and fully human and completely innocent. What's your answer? Yes. Yes. And do you turn your life over to him? For your whole life, but also with whatever faith that you have. Just this itty bitty, teeny tiny faith to intersect with a God-sized faithfulness would you give him that much what's your answer yes yes we say yes to Jesus yes with everything that we have yes 
to everybody in the room, yes, to everybody worshiping with us at Church Online, we say yes. We say yes, God. We are completely and 100% available to you. Yes, God. We want to see the power of your resurrection in our lives. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We are available. I am yours. Let's keep on praising God what he's up to today.